Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're on the phone with a good friend who I consider a really close friend and part of the Project Purple family, even though she has her own organization, Chris Parrish, who is the founder of Purple Iris Foundation out of Brewer, Maine. Welcome to the Project Purple Podcast, Chris. Thank you, Dino. I'm excited to be here. I appreciate uh, you reaching out to me. Well, we appreciate you on very short notice taking time out of your busy schedule to be a guest on our podcast. And for our listeners at home, um, I will give my quick two minute, less than 30 seconds, let's say, introduction for you, Chris, and then I'll let you get into your story and, and what brings you here today. But Chris and I have become friends over the last three years. I think we first met in New York City, uh, well, it's probably four years ago because we've had three meetings as part of the World Pancreatic Cancer Coalition, but the first yeah. meeting for it, it, it is four years. So we've known each other for four years. We met in New York City at the North. It was originally the North American Pancreatic Cancer Alliance. And that was four year, four summers ago in New York City. And uh, we've known each other ever since. And we've become, I consider you a, a very close friend and a confidant in what we're all doing in this space. And, and really an outstanding person um, and really gotten to know you and, and what you're doing and your story. And uh, we want to share that with our audience here at Project Purple. So with that, Chris, go right ahead. And uh, we'd love to hear your background um, and feel free to share as much of your background as you'd like. Well, thank you. And thank you for that lovely introduction. It feels like a lifetime. Uh, truly, it does. And uh, I cherish the friendship we've had and I admire what you do with Project Purple and what you do uh, in your dad's memory. Uh, so it, uh, it means a lot when somebody shares the same passion for something. Uh, you automatically just connect, um, and uh, that's a beautiful thing. So my introduction to pancreatic cancer, I was diagnosed uh, June 16th of 2008. Um, actually, I was told I had a mass in my pancreas and lots of lesions on my liver. And then about a week later, I went to my first oncology appointment, and that's when they told me I had stage four uh, pancreatic cancer with that had metastasized to pretty much the whole right lobe of my liver. Um, and uh, I, I had been sick with, we backtracked that by about five, about five years. I had consistent stomach pain. I couldn't eat. I had a, like a 50-pound weight loss. I mean, it, it seemed overnight. Uh, people are like, are you sick, Chris? I'm like, no, I'm just skinny for the first time in my life, you know, <laughs> just throwing off all these excuses. And my dad always popped Tums, so I started popping them. And then it got the, the stomach and the digestive issues became just so awful that I had to go to my doctor. And that led me on a realm of Prilosec and Nexiums and all these prescriptions that just didn't work for me. It, it nothing worked. Um, my weight loss and ability not to really eat continued on. I, I ended up after about three years of trying things to help me, I just went back to Tums and Mylanta. <laughs> um, 
And then if you fast forward another couple years, so we're about five years after having all these troubles, I was sitting at my desk doing my work and literally I just started feeling like, feeling like I was going to die. Like it felt like, I, I can't even describe the feeling and I just started crying. My pain, my back, I had back pain that was excruciating. Um, I, none of my bodily functions worked. Um, I couldn't urinate. I couldn't defecate. I, I, nothing worked. And I got into my doc the next day and she's like, Chris, I've never seen you this sick. And I said, I've never felt this bad. And I was still crying. I think I cried for like 24 hours of just, I don't know what to do. And, um, I had testing, they had made me comfortable, still couldn't eat, um, so we're probably going about a week without eating at this point. Um, I, I would try and it would just come back up. Uh, wow. Um, Chris, can I just I, jump in here for a second? Sure, so sure. For, so for five years prior to, what were doctors saying? They just told me, here, take this. We, we, they didn't, I never got a scan. I never got any blood tests. They're just like, you know, here, take a Nexium. Here, take, take a Prilosec. And I, you know, I, and for me, I was like, well, there's a doctor, so they know. And, it, you know, I just, I just, I got tired of them not knowing and not really taking me seriously and throwing me on a pill. So there was really nothing. I mean, I, I had had some other problems, like I said, the back pain, which I thought was an old sports injury, mm -hmm. but I never put them all together to think that, oh, something is wrong. I mean, the weight loss should have been a no-brainer. I mean, I was, I'd probably go about 160. I was down to like 120. Oh, my God. Oh, uh, what you see, what you see me as now, Dino, is a complete, well, 50 pounds ago. I, I have 50 pounds on me compared to what I did, so I was a skeleton. Um, that's just so. Saying, we, we can't find anything wrong. That's so frustrating when we hear that, right, Chris? Because uh, it's yeah. like the number one, you know, and, and you always hear the stories of people that go constantly back and forth to the doctor, and the doctors just prescribe a pill or say it's something else, and they never do a scan. Or never maybe look in a book and say, wow, if you've lost rapid weight loss or if you well, have lower back pain, ding, ding, ding. It could be pancreatic cancer or something to do with your lower abdomen or your GI tract. Like do a endoscopic ultrasound, do a CT scan, you know, do something. Some, yeah. Something. When your digestive tract is that significant weight loss, I, I agree. I mean, when I look back on it now, um, I am appalled. And I still have the same family doctor, believe it or not. Um, and she's been a gym through my treatment and afterwards. I have to say, she's really upped her game. And we have discussed, you know, I have family members that can't even get there. I mean, they all have pancreas issues, whether it's diabetes, pancreatitis. And I said, I can't even get doctors to listen to them. And they have a, we have a history of pancreatic cancer. And, and so for me, knowing, I wish I knew how to advocate for myself like I do now. Yeah. I, it would have been a totally different ball game. Um, but I played the game of the doctors know what they're doing. And I just got, I got frustrated. So my, my answer was, I'm just going to stop going. Just stop, just stop going because it, it was, it was futile. 
truthfully. Um, and it is frustrating. Um, um, and like I said, still to this day with family members dealing with pancreas issues, it's, uh, it's, it's appalling that, that nobody takes you seriously. They just kind of skim over things. And finally, we found family doctors in our area that take, take what, what our family's dealing with seriously. So, uh, it's, it's been a chore. It's been a 10 year, 10 year journey for not only myself, but my whole family to get their issues taken care of. Who else in your family has had the disease, Chris? Uh, well, nobody's had pancreatic cancer ever in my, in my entire family line. Wow. Nobody. Uh, my grandfather had leukemia. Uh-huh. Um, my mom had gestational diabetes, but not with just with my younger brother. Yeah. Um, so there's really been no pancreas disease or no diabetes a little bit on my dad's side. Yeah. That's because they ate fried food and sweets up, just sweets. And, and so that's what I, I chalked that up to. But I think my parents were a perfect storm and created pancreas issues. Um, like wow. I said, that we're all, we're all dealing with. I just happen to be the pancreatic cancer one. Yeah, you just happen to be the one. <laughs> I got the lucky draw. You got the, draw the, I you got the you got the short end of the straws. <laughs> yeah, I, I did, but uh, it really it brought me uh, the, the strength that I had. I knew I always had it in me, but this really brought me to where I needed to be and to what the purpose that I have on this earth is is to make sure that people are given hope because I I know I wasn't given any at all. I had to find my own and that was such a struggle um such a struggle uh and uh it makes me feel good that i can i can spread hope so now i'm gonna take us back so you get diagnosed you go through this five years of being misdiagnosed and then you're finally diagnosed and so can we talk a little bit about so what happens then so you go in they realize you have stage four and then um typically stage four patients um aren't surgical right away so was there treatment that was done and what were the steps after that well i uh well it took me it took me i had three weeks to wait to get into my oncologist which people don't realize that you don't get into your oncologist right away not unless you know somebody yeah um and or and for me i got in within i think it was two weeks because i kept bugging them i said i I need a cancellation um so I, that's, it took me that long to get in, and their standard treatment, there, there was only one standard treatment at the time in 2008 when I was diagnosed, and that was Gemzar and Tarceva. That, that was the only thing. And doing my research, I mean, I researched, I mean, that's all I did. I wanted to find, I was 40 years old at the time of diagnosis, which is 30 years younger than what you're supposed to be. And so... If, if, I'm, if I, my memory serves me right, Gemzar and Tarceva was a 40-year-old treatment. They had been using the same standard treatment for 40 years with a 2% survival rate at the time. And I was like, there's no way you're treating me with this. And so they're like, well, that's the standard, that's the standard care. And I said, um, I'm going for a second opinion in Boston. So I went to Boston, and at the time, very few clinical trials at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there, there was one, but I wasn't the right type of pancreatic cancer. So there was no clinical trial for me to do. And Boston told me to go home and do the Dimzar Tarceva cocktail at home and get my affairs in order. 
which that was the second time I heard that. And that truthfully just irritated me. <laughs> um, it added fuel to my fire to want to prove people wrong. Um, I was too young to die. When I thought of, thought of dying really wasn't something that was an enjoyable experience. I'm like, there's so much to do. I mean, so much to do. And, um, so that's when I started searching out for, for different hospitals, different doctors. Um, and, uh, I had seen commercials geez, for probably four years of, of a pancreatic cancer survivor. And so I went back and I found that online and her name was Peggy Kessler. And so that's what connected me with cancer treatment centers of America was she was a survivor. And I'm like, if they can make her a survivor, I can be a survivor. So that's where I started my journey with them at Midwestern uh, in August of 2008. So I went basically two months without being treated to get in the CTCA in Chicago. I had some insurance issues. I had to get those diamond out, which is literally an act of God. Um, but that came through too. I had a lot of I had a lot of like uh, Kathy Griffith would would say Godwin. Yeah. Uh, through this whole process, um, I literally was carried through this process. So many people helped me. My 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 boss at uh, uh, I, I worked at Bank of America in Belfast, and uh, all the people there just rallied around me, and they found loopholes to change my insurance, and so I could get out there and get treated and. Um, or go for a consult, and then I stayed an extra week to get treated in August. And, uh, so I started started treatments in August, of, and it was a complete different, uh, completely different chemo regimen. It was FUDR, mm -hmm. form of uh, full, it's a full Purinex, the five yep. FU is the five FU, yep. well. and it was uh, infused with leucovorin. Uh, huh. And leucovorin opens up your cells. I had two hours of that. And then the FUDR was like a three-minute push. And then I would have another two, two and a half hours of the leucoborn, which would open up my cells. Um, which, it was the trippiest experience I've ever had in my life. <laughs> um, but, uh, it, I mean, you had to do what you had to do. Yeah. And, uh, among, uh, along with that, I had this, I don't know if it was a, a trial at the time, but they were partnering with MD Anderson, and I was young enough and hadn't had chemo, so they gave me what was called intra-arterial therapy, and it was three, like a heart catheter, yeah. um, only the little wires go into your liver and your pancreas, and it shoots 40 times the amount of chemo consistently for like 15 hours, like a 15-hour I was sandbagged down. I couldn't move. For 15 um, hours? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, and then on top of that, I had my regular chemo on top of that. So they, the first couple months, they morphined me out just because I was in a lot of pain. So I really don't remember it except for getting up and walking out. Uh, my mom has some really good stories. <laughs> really good story. You should ask her sometime. And your mom, <laughs> and for our audience listening at home, you you have brought your mom, which I I think is you know the the, the special sauce and in, in a lot of this, Chris is you, for me. Being it is able, me too. Being able to meet your mom at so many of these meetings that we go to, and and just hearing her story and getting to know her is just really special. And I think maybe for me. 
you know, for losing my dad. And, uh, you know, it's special for, for me to see you as a survivor, to have your mom there. It's, uh, it's really cool. So thank you for, thank you for bringing her to so many of our, uh, of our pancreatic cancer outings and meetings. And, uh, it's really special to see you guys there together. Uh, it's my pleasure. Uh, she was, uh, my whole family pitched in, but she left, uh, her, my stepdad in Kentucky, um, and came up to take care of me. And this is my way of kind of saying thank you for the things I get to do. Mom gets to be my plus one to, to just about everything. And I, I still appreciate still having her around and being able to experience so many cool things with her. So I appreciate you saying that she loves, she loves talking and meeting people and um, she's a natural at all of this. So I don't, I, I I don't know where you get it from though, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I get a lot of things from my mom. I, I see that every day uh, in her and we talk about that a lot. So um, she sees me on my worst days too. Uh, when I'm really struggling with a lot of uh, pain in my abdomen area. So she, she sees the best and worst. So, uh, that, like I said, I, w I couldn't have a better travel partner. Yeah. So you were saying, so you, you went through this experimental treatment. Um, yeah. And then... And that was, that that actually literally knocked everything back in my body. My red blood cell count, my white blood cell count, my platelets. Everything, uh, I mean, everything just plummet. And so it's uh, a very highly aggressive treatment, but it's also... Uh, one of those things that it's deadly. Uh, if you're not like a healthy young person that has the body, and luckily I was in halfway decent shape, and um, but it literally it was like it was like a heavyweight throwing a punch. I mean, it knocked you out. Mm. Um, but my big thing the very first day is I remember telling my mom, I'm like, I'm walking out of here because I had to, to kick in that. I don't know, I call it warrior mode, um, whatever that is, to just, I, I had to have some control of what I, what happened that day, and mine was to walk out. I barely walked out, but I walked out of the hospital, and then collapsed into the shuttle. But my, my, my point was, I always had to, even out of chemo, I walked out proud, I'm like, yep, that's one down, you know, that was my job, I, my job was to beat this, this beat, and, uh, I went to war with it and came out the other side. I'm very grateful. But the inner arterial not only was knocking your, your blood and, I mean, everything in your being down, I still struggle with my white blood cell, my hemoglobin, my platelets. They all are usually half and maybe get to three-quarters of where they need to be, but I always struggle with energy and uh, low blood count still. And we're, we're looking at... 10 years later. Um, but the good thing was is it knocked down my tumor markers by 80% each month. That's phenomenal. So, oh, it was, it's, it's what saved my life. I will lie. It, it saved my life. It was the hardest thing I've ever done, but it also was the most productive because it literally, I mean, my, my tumor markers started out and it was 44,000 plus for my pancreas. That's as far as they can measure. That's unbelievable. 
yeah. Uh, even when I went out to Cancer Treatment Centers of America, they're like, we've, we've never seen anything this high. And I said, well, when I do something, I do it right, I guess. <laughs> you do it a bang. <laughs> yep, yep. I said, you know, sometimes it's, it's hard for me to listen. And I said, so I'm, I'm listening now. Yeah. I've got my attention. Uh, but yeah, it was a five and a half centimeter uh, mass right smack dab in the middle of my pancreas. So um, with meth to the liver, at that time they didn't do surgery um, because of both both being impacted. And then they said if one cleared up, they would do radiation. Well, they took turns every month. Literally one month my pancreas would go down, and even in numbers. And then one month. That the, the month there would be one month that the pancreas went down in a scan, but the next scan my liver cleared up. So it was one of those things that it teetered back and forth. And you know, I went out every three weeks for treatment, and I had four intraarterials, one each every three weeks. Um, and then I started on platelets and blood transfusions, and I think I had about eight blood transfusions and four or five platelet transfusions. But, uh, so that can I just jump in here for a second, Chris? So during that sure. time, like I know you said your mom was with you, like mentally, and I know, I, you know, we've talked about this, I mean, uh, at various lengths, you and I um, in, in the past, and we've talked to other survivors about this. Like what was it that during that time, if we can look back, that got you through that? Because that's no easy task, right? Like, A, you're flying across the country, first of all, well, halfway across, you know, to Chicago to do this treatment. Um, so there's the whole, I mean, yeah. you know, I, we all travel or for our listeners at home, just imagine this is not travel for vacation. It's not travel for work. You're going to get, you know, life-saving treatment and knowing that you potentially, you know, the odds are stacked against you. You have a terminal disease. So just that in itself to, you know, travel is, is probably the, the stress and the anxiety is so much higher and exacerbated. And then you're going in for these 15-hour treatments where they have to morphine you out to knock you out because you have to stand still for that long period of time and the pain and, and everything else. So like, you know, for our audience to stay at home, like what's going through your, you know, what kept you coming back? Because I, you know, I, I have to say personally, I don't know if I would go back, Chris. You know, for me personally, I mean, that's a lot. <laughs> no, no, it, it uh, and as listening to you describe it, uh, is, uh, it sounded like, it sounds like a lot. I don't know how I did it, but I knew I didn't want to die. And I knew that as long as I was getting, I, I had a brilliant uh, oncologist, Dr. Robert Levin, and I trusted him. I trusted him with my life. And I love the people there. And after, the first couple times you go, you develop a family out there and, you know, you're there, you know, it was just as Facebook was coming out. So you developed a camaraderie where you would call each other. And, and so you had people that were going back out at the same time as you. And so you would develop these rapports and, um, one, you wanted to see them and see how they were doing. But two, you know, I knew this was saving my life as hard as it was. I knew, I knew, I knew there was a week and let me I'm going to be all over the place because you really hit like an emotional thing for me um that's okay it um it uh I had a week of not knowing what what 
where, what, I mean, what I was even doing, how could this can't even be me? I could not be diagnosed with this. It's got the wrong person. And then one morning I just woke up and I, a friend gave me the book, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. Mm-hmm. And I, I was like, oh, and I woke up, I'm like, I just had a different attitude. And I start, I picked up this book and started reading it. I mean, I had nothing better to do. I wasn't working. And it was the hardest book I ever read. But it, it I had these demons. I had like the angel and the devil on your shoulder where the little angel would say, you're going to make this, Chris. You can do it. You can do it. But then I had the little devil saying, um, really? <laughs> Look what you have. Uh there's no way you're going to beat this. And it was always listening, hearing the doctor's voice saying, you know, just go home and get your affairs in order. Have you signed, you know, those, that paperwork when you're living well, I think, or the, yeah, do yeah. Not resuscitate. Like, doing that. That. Yeah. So you hear these voices constantly in your head and I, I needed a way to quiet them down. And that book helped me acknowledge them in a basic premise is acknowledge them tell them to go away and it helps you stay present. And truthfully, that that book, uh, a book called The Cancer Conqueror, which is a small, small, small book. I try to I try to snag as many copies as I can when I find them um, because it's one of the best books I've ever found and the easiest read for anybody impacted by cancer. Um, it talks a lot about your 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 attitude and, and mentally how you're how you're thinking, you know, you, you have this brutal diagnosis, but you're still living. Um, you know, you can't stay in this diagnosis and still get out of, even if you only have six months. I didn't I didn't want to be not present. I, I wanted to see everything vividly, clearly, without interruption. And the power of now allowed me to do that along with the cancer conquer. So it literally was a mindset change. I, I mean, not only did I change my mindset, I had to change my entire diet. Well, I couldn't eat, so ensure. And then as I started eating, I mean, it was vegetables, which vegetables, that was an extra at the time before I was diagnosed. I didn't eat them all that often. Um, so it was a whole lifestyle change, and, and with it came this determination that I had never found in me before. I mean, I was an athlete. I was a good athlete, but I never had that killer instinct and I knew what I was saving it for. It was to be this and it literally kicked in. I mean, after finding the tools to quiet my mind down, uh, you know, I tried to exercise through chemo, even if it was a quarter of a mile walking down the little main town that I lived in down the street and, and back. It was at least walking. So I tried to keep sharp. I would get up and help my brother in law and sister get ready for work like I was getting ready for work and you know, try to have a routine, and it was literally just keeping my my mind mentally tough. Um, but with that, a lot of people said, "Are you living in reality?" I'm like, "Well, uh, I know I can die. I mean, what what else do you want me to tell you? I I know I can die from this, but I'm choosing not. I'm choosing to live, not choosing like getting ready to die. If that makes sense. Absolutely, and I think something that you just said. Um, you know, living in the present and the attitude and the mental aspect of this disease, I think is so critical, Chris, when we talk to families and patients. And I don't know if you would uh, agree with that statement because I think people as a society, we get caught up in the what ifs 
or the shouldas or the could haves. And sometimes we miss what's right in front of us and focusing yeah. on what is right in front of us and what we can control. And you can control your attitude. You can control what's in front of you. And you can control a tremendous amount of what happens day in, day out to you by living in the present and not worrying about things you can't control um, that are beyond your control sometimes. Yes, and I, I completely agree with that. I, I think that uh, when I started working at the bank in Belfast, which was like two years before I was diagnosed, they gave us this quote that said, "A 90, 90% of, uh, Charles Swindell, 90% of life is how you react to what happens. I can't remember yeah. the whole yeah. quote. Yep. But it's, it's about choosing your attitude. Like, you can have a, a, a crappy thing that happened to you, but you don't have to camp out and live there. You, yes, that, that happened, but now I need to move on from that. I, that, that's just a small piece of, of my whole day. And it really brought those types of things to the forefront. Like before cancer, I was living, I mean, I just, it, I was just a shell of what I am now. I mean, I was a good person, but I just like drags you down sometimes. And, um, and, and it didn't make me fully appreciate it. You know, I lost my dad, uh, in 94 and I really never recovered from that, uh, truthfully. And, you know, I, I tried to, and I thought I did, but then when cancer hit, it gave me this beautiful perspective that with people and, you know, and you, you have people for just a short period of time. So if they're your people, you need to enjoy them. Um, because I've lost a lot of friends through cancer and, Losing my dad at an early age and not knowing how, I don't know if you ever learn how to deal with it, but I wish I knew, knew then what I know now because it just puts things in a different perspective and, and, uh, and, uh, makes you value so much of the people that you love and the things you love to do and, um, just making memories. And, uh, that was, that's been my, that's actually been my goal for the last 10 years. Trying to make them. That's great stuff and great advice, Chris. So, just to go back, you go through this treatment at Chicago, in Chicago at Cancer Centers of America. And then what happens after those four treatments? Well, after those four, the four inner arterial, so it was August, September, October, and November. So, November, my literally everything plummeted. <laughs> Everything. I mean, I am in. Well, everything when, hits the wall at that point, right? Like you're so, uh, you know, it, it's like the uh, the perfect storm, I guess they would say, right? With it, all the treatments. It was. Uh, well, the the, the intraarterial were three old school uh, chemo drugs. It was mitomycin, cisplatin, and there was another one. And so it was these three old school drugs that, I mean, the, the toxicity. I mean, you really had to watch it. And in November, that was when everything plummeted and that's when they found, okay, this is the last treatment, which disappointed me, but I knew my body couldn't take any more of that. Mm -hmm. um, it was the hardest thing. I mean, chemo, at, my regular chemo, my FUDR and glucoborin, I continued to do for another three years, three years and two months. So um, every three weeks after, well, sometimes it would be four because my blood work would be all over the place. Um, it would fluctuate like it would, and it still does this. It, it still feels like it's on chemo, um, but it fluctuates, and I mean, it would plummet. So I'd have to go get a platelet transfusion, or um, before I would get chemo, they'd have to give me uh, two bags of, of blood, 
um, which I have to say, I understand what blood does for you now because I, I'm like, I have great energy. But once I got my two bags of blood, I'm like, I could go run a marathon right yeah. now. This is awesome. <laughs> Now we know why those Tour de France cyclists yeah. do the blood doping, right? And like how uh, that's become so prevalent. I totally understand that now. <laughs> they, well, they did it back in the 70s, I yeah. think, for the Olympics and stuff. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. I think I told the docs that. I said, no, I get this. I totally get what that's like. Yeah. Said, because you feel invincible. Because you, I, I called it like half a tank. Yeah. And, and then they put two quarts in me. And you're like, ooh, I get, a little, awesome. I get a little high. Actually, a big high right on the back of my neck because you have to take you're supposed to take Benadryl but I didn't because it knocked me out and so I would have to take it once I got that big spot right on the back of my neck and so we, we had an ongoing joke that I had so much so many other people's blood that but am I going to turn into them because <laughs> I, I didn't I didn't have any of my own blood I mean they had filled me so many times so I had to find the bright, chuckly spots out of this whole thing. And that, those are the type of things that kept me going. I, I had to find a sense of humor in some of the crappiest situations. But, you know, all you can do is laugh about it because, well, you know, what, what's the alternative? I didn't like the alternative. And that, that's really what kept me going through all of this. Um, the three and a half years of going back for treatment and... You know, through winter weather, being stuck in, in New York City for three days or stuck in Chicago for an extra four days. I mean, the traveling, when you said that, I'm like, wow, I did travel a lot. But for me, it was just doing what I had to do to survive. I, I did not want to die. Well, I think you, everyone finds ways to do that, right? Like, no matter what it is, whether it's travel or you know, weather or things that you sacrifice to stay alive is a very common theme that we've heard from all the survivors and fighters. Like they go to all ends of the earth to figure this out, which from yeah. a caregiver's perspective, Chris, is very frustrating because here we are in 2000, we're almost in 2019. We've got phones that can revolutionize business and can do amazing things you know, with technology, but though people have to go to Kilimanjaro or feel like they have to climb Kilimanjaro to get quality healthcare. Mm -hmm. And that, that is, uh, that's completely frustrating. I, 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 just from being in the cancer world for the past 10 years, I've seen the steady decline of our insurance system yeah. and friends being kicked off their insurance or, having to pay for Cobra, which is three quarters of their income each month. And, um, and then not being able to go to the hospital of their choice because their insurance will no longer cover the life-saving care that they're getting and treatment in a place that, and they say that they can get it closer to home, which they can't. Um, there's so many things that I've seen go wrong. And I think they've always been there, but they're becoming more prevalent as, cancer and all these autoimmune diseases become more prevalent is people are going to the doctor looking for answers and things just aren't being covered. Um, I was very lucky and fortunate to have a great healthcare plan, but I still had hoops to jump through. But luckily I, I had people to help me and I, I have to say my determination was, uh, this is going to work. I don't know how, but it's going to, and, um, literally things came up and loopholes presented themselves and, I've actually helped people
you can change your insurance. One of those only loopholes that you can only get if you move and change addresses. Huh. But yeah, and that's what saved my life was me taking a PO box in Dyan, Illinois. I probably shouldn't say that out loud, but I, I actually say it to hundreds of people a year because what if? What if that could save somebody's life? It did mine. I'm not going to rat you out, and I don't think any of our listeners will either, Chris. And if no, someone is, and no, if no, someone no, is actually, listening from yeah. the uh, the postal service, well, too bad. <laughs> well, they actually, the one, uh, the postal worker was phenomenal uh, in Illinois. I mean, she was like, yep, you know, and just come here when you're out here and collect your mail. And that was my new mailing address. All my mail, I collected it once every three weeks. That's, so, all, that's it, it's awesome that that was presented and you were able to do that but it's also frustrating right and that's one of the things that we talk about often about changing this yeah whole thing I agree. you know and and there's so many pieces and this is just one big component everyone thinks you know there's a lot of talk in our space about a test and early detection but guess what if we don't get insurance and we don't get pharma and we don't get legislative piece of it involved all working together who cares if you have a test if it's two thousand dollars for a person to do it then what good is it right and right. then you eliminate 90 percent of the people that can get a test like that's great that we have these treatments but are the treatments you know able to be distributed for the masses and not just the people that either can afford them or the people that are in chicago for an example, right. and just using right. that as an example, you know, like the barrier to get these treatments has to be uniform. And I think that's a real problem here in the United States. And, you know, going back to your story, you know, five years being misdiagnosed or having to go all the way to Chicago from Maine, you know, just to get proper care is like mind boggling, you know, like, you're, it, you know, yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And, and, and I don't want to take anything against the, the hospital, the, the cancer center here in Brewer. But, I mean, at the time, and, and I've had to tell people here and made my story, there was no treatment for pancreatic cancer if you stayed that would be different. I said, that that's like a death sentence yeah. to somebody 40 years old. And, and I said, so at that point in time, I mean, it's still now with clinical trials, and they only base, like here in Maine, there's very few pancreatic cancer clinical trials. Maybe one, maybe two that they offer here, if that. But you have to, the further south you go down, there's more opportunity. So literally, most people travel to Dana-Farber and or other places from Maine, which, like you said, is, I mean, that's, that's a lot of fine. I'm getting ready to go out for my checkup in Chicago, and I use a, a service called Patient Airlift Services, and they've mm -hmm. been flying me for eight years. Um, and without them, I would never get back out to Chicago because I, I can't afford the airfare to hop back and forth. So there, you know, what my, my, what my um, journey has taught me is I found a lot of places that help people, and I've been able to, to connect, like, uh, other people with patient airlift services. And so I feel like I'm a conduit of connection for people that are in need. Um, and, you know, it's, it's about spreading the hope again. And uh, my... My niece's Graham, she uh, was diagnosed with her third bout of breast cancer. And, you know, here at home, they were like, yeah, well, we can put you on hormones. And so she went to 
Philadelphia, and she's been going strong for three years. So, I mean, if that is just a testament of what progression of healthcare that we need to have all over, we need to have the same same opportunities. Um, and it, it, we're in the 21st century, and my frustration is, is we have archaic medicine when it, when you're not in a bigger city. And you know, I guess that happens, but that's unspeakable, I think, in this day and age. There's telemedicine. There's so many things out there that could pull us above and beyond with the standards that we have in rural areas. So I could go on all day about that. And I couldn't agree with you more that that, that it, we, we should, um, and it, it could, um, and it needs to. Um, and, you know, we're pushing. And we'll, oh, yeah. Well, hopefully yeah. We'll, we'll get there sooner than later, Chris, uh, for everyone's sake. So – Today, where we are today, 10 years post, uh, right? So you had a 10-year anniversary just in June. I did. I did. It still is very surreal. Very surreal. I think it's been 10 years. So are you clean of, of any cancer or are you any deed, Chris? Uh, well, my, my pancreas shriveled about six months after I stopped treatment. My pancreas shriveled up. So I had a one-centimeter spot that got shriveled up with the rest of my pancreas. I only have a part of my the head of my pancreas that work. So in the liver, my right lobe has five or six lesions still in it that they keep an eye on. So your pancreas is still there or you've had it removed? No, I, I know. It's just shriveled up. It's like a pancake. So it's still in there, but it's, it's hard to see. Is that from the treatment, did they say? or that That's the only thing. Most... Most of the doctors are like, you've had the Whipple, and I raised my shirt, and I'm like, I didn't. It's in there. you, you, you got to look. It's in there. And so they go back to the scans, and they're like, oh, you're right. I'm like, yeah. So, yeah, uh, it's, uh, it, that has, has uh, my blood sugar. I have some issues with my blood sugar that I'm trying to figure out a diet that keeps it to where it needs to be without going on medication. And um it regulates when it wants to. So I, I eat a pretty clean diet. Yeah. Um, I don't do a lot of junk. If I do, I do it in very small quantities. And my body usually tells me when, when it's when. And I try to get out and walk and exercise when I can and um, just keep moving. And I know you have, um, and you and I have talked about this, and for our listeners at home, you've done a lot of non-traditional stuff as well through the years as, uh, as well. Um, and I'd love for you to share that with our audience, if that's yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, along with my, uh, and I have to credit uh, CQCA for for bringing these things out to me. Some things uh, that I've experienced, I've, I've found on my own. But uh, we had naturopathic doctors um, that uh, helped um, with the chemotherapy. So along with regular chemo, they we had a naturopathic doctor that would uh, give us stuff to prescribe us natural supplements to help us uh, keep our body strong um, and anti-cancer drugs. A lot of, for me, it was a lot of uh, digestion mm -hmm. uh, stuff um, and just to keep the body flowing, natural flora, you know, a probiotic. And I never knew the importance of fish oil because chemo, um, the chemo I was on could cause a lot of blood clots, um, just there's so many side effects from doing chemo. So keep your body clean. Energy, they gave me a couple things for energy because I didn't want to be a bump on the log. I, I needed to be out doing stuff. So 
the naturopathic part really paired well for me because it taught me I, I didn't believe in any of this stuff, but they, they, they nurtured me and taught me how it was important to do both because you got to keep your body strong. And then they paired that with um, a dietitian, not a dietitian, they called it something else, but somebody to help you with your diet. Um, and with pancreatic cancer, uh, it's not something you can eat a lot. So when you eat, you had to, you had to find things that one, that you could eat, but two, that would help fuel your body. And for me, that was, I was fueling, I had to fuel myself because I wanted to survive. I didn't just want to waste away. So it was important to find ways to eat, one, because you're not hungry. Mm-hmm. So um, in the state of Maine, we do have medical marijuana. Yep. And at the time, that, that was that was something that was just being instituted. So I, I, I implemented that for the eating so I could actually eat. Did so that I, help, I Chris? Oh, it, it stimulated my appetite like you would not believe. Which, which is one of those things, but it, it, there, there were also the, the, the healing qualities within the plant, too. So mm-hmm. most people think you can you smoke it. What? Yep, you do. But there's <laughs> other ways. You can get them in edibles. You can get it in tincture form. So there's so many ways that you can do it. Uh, a lot of people use the CBD stuff Correct. for pain, pain relief. Um, and so back then, there was no CBD oil, so you, you had to find what you could do. Uh, now, as it's starting to become more prevalent and they're breaking things down, um, we have the CBD that, that is, is something I take. I, I use the salve on my body to help aches and pains. And uh, so that was a big proponent, one, to make me eat. Um, and then, two, the dietitian would help me because I was basically on Insure for six months, Boost, Insure, and then trying to eat when you have no appetite, you can't taste can't smell everything makes you want to vomit so they helped alleviate some of those like uh like peppermint i used to have peppermint inhaler stuck up my nose for nausea when i when people were cooking so i wouldn't have to smell it totally worked i never understood that but it worked so um little things like that then the other side of it was um Massage, which everybody has a massage. Well, I never knew how badly my body needed a massage until I battled cancer. And so they introduced me to that, but also to uh, Reiki and acupuncture. Mm-hmm. And, and so Reiki, uh, I'm now a Reiki practitioner, a level two. But what it does, I, I call it just letting your energy flow. You're made up of different uh, chakras or points in your body and the energy flows through them and when you're stressed or when you're sick you're clogged and so Reiki helps unclog you and let your your energy or your chi flow Um, and then lastly is acupuncture which acupuncture I hate needles hate them hate them hate them but acupuncture actually helped alleviate a lot of anxiety before going in and starting my week of chemo Um, uh, and then I had it at the end of the week, and it helped minimize my side effects going home. So it, it was a, a double factor there. And when I can afford it, I, I have acupuncture here at home at the community acupuncture. I wish I could do it every couple of weeks, but um, out there it was free. So I, I, I took advantage of it twice a week. And, you know, and I, I don't know if it was just my, my it, how it reacted with me, but all I know is it made my week of chemo 
like I could breathe again. I wasn't anxiety ridden, especially if I had a scan. Um, and like I said, going home, I, I was up in Adams after acupuncture on a Friday. I would be up probably by Saturday afternoon raring to go. I will, I will say this, Chris. It's awesome what you just gave our audience because I've I've said this for countless years. There's no right or wrong in this. You have to yeah. find what works and using medical marijuana, using real marijuana. Um, my dad, you know, when he was sick, they gave him the medical marijuana. He just he didn't like it. It didn't, he didn't, you know, and that was his preference, but I've, oh, talked, yeah. we've talked to countless people that it works wonders. And now with the CBD oils, um, I was just at an event, um, for CrossFit and now CBD is like a recovery in athletics, like for athletes. It is. It's just ph- phenomenal what the, what they're doing with that. But then talking about acupuncture, and going back to your story, I think for our audience listening at home, if there's people that are fighting the disease and having bad side effects or family members, there's nothing wrong with looking at these alternatives. There's, they're not mumbo jumbo. They're not witchcraft. These things work. Um, and for a lot of people, they have found them to be very effective, as in your case, in your treatment and in your life. And, and that's something that's really powerful here, Chris, with our audience hopefully listening is that, you know, you do have to look outside the box sometimes. And this is the one thing with this disease that we have seen is at least I can say in the 10 years that I've been in this, when my dad was diagnosed, going through our own personal situation with my dad and then here at Project Purple, that I have to say that people who go outside the box that not necessarily are looking for alternatives, but are looking outside the box in terms of treatment and that can be conventional treatment which you said before like that's what you had to do like you had to go outside that conventional box to get this treatment but you're alive 10 years later after stage four and then all these other things along the way which are outside the box non-conventional it's truly powerful and i mean i think your story is a testament to looking outside the box Unfortunately, you have to do that yourself. No one's going to offer that to you, right? Like you don't go to the, yeah. the clinic and they say, "Well, hey, Chris. Well, here are you know, here's Reiki, here's acupuncture." I think now, I think more of the traditional medical system. I think they some institutions. I know they do like music therapy, or mm-hmm. they even have like the service animals come in. Which okay, the service animals not providing any physical. You know, there's no IV there from the animal into you, but the mental aspect of that is is like the the, the benefits of that is tremendous for a patient. Oh, I, and I agree. We had Tori, the therapy dog. God love her. She's 12 years old now, but she, I had to leave my dog at home for a week, and so Tori would come sit with me for two hours, and I've been in a few Twitter. Twitter uh, back and forth with doctors that say that this stuff isn't isn't um, there's no there's no evidence it's not evidence based and I said yeah. I lived in the, I lived in the cancer world and my evidence is watching somebody come out looking extremely exhausted and tired and then when they came out they had the cute smile on their face they felt like a weight had been lifted off their shoulder I said that's all the evidence I need I yeah. said it might not be scientific. But if that person comes out feeling like a new person compared to when they felt went in, that's a huge win for the day. People in cancer, 
in, in my in my what I've seen in my own personal experience is that you know you take it day by day and you win each day by finding something that makes you smile and if that's acupuncture if that's a massage if that's a walk if that's sitting in the park you find that and it might not have any scientific basis but it feeds your soul and I find that's the biggest thing is you have to find those things in your journey to to be able to to realize how beautiful it is to still be alive yeah you're battling something but and the way I look at it is everybody's battling. I just have cancer. I have a different battle. So I had to put, that's how I got my big big girl pants on each day is, you know, everybody's got a battle. Yours is just this one. So let's do this. And I called in my super friends, you know, Superman and Wonder Woman. I had these images of I would sit in my in bed before I got up and they would all be taking their wax at my tumor and my pancreas, and that—that's how I'll, that was my mental imagery for the morning. So I felt like a superhero when I went into my dance. That's awesome. I, I, I just I've never that. told anybody that one. So <laughs> we're bringing we're bringing some untold uh, information yes, here, out yes. of you, Chris. I love this. I love this. So I, I want to shift gears here for a second because um, sure. I want to talk about what you're doing, and so. You go through this experience, and somewhere along the way, you become the founder of the Purple Iris Foundation. So, how did that all come about? And let's talk about you know the history, what you guys are focused on. And I know you've got an event coming up, which we can save for the very end. But let talk about how that started. Okay. Well, um, I my first spring, I was only supposed to have till Christmas, and so Christmas was beautiful. Um, and then I got to see literally my very first spring. It was like being reborn. And I lived with my brother, my sister and brother-in-law in a little main town. And our next door neighbor was part of the garden club in Camden, Maine. Her yard was beautiful. And she invited myself, my mom, and my little, I think my niece was like a year, nine months to a year old. And so my niece Ava and I were walking around her garden. And we literally went down and smelled the flowers. And it literally, it was like the first time I had ever smelled a flower before. And I realized I love flowers. I love springtime. And so flowers have become my passion. And so it started out, I wanted purple tulips. I wanted to plant purple tulips to raise awareness to pancreatic cancer. Couldn't find them anywhere at the time. So we went on an internet search for the perfect purple flower. The purple iris came up. Uh, the meaning, faith, courage, hope, wisdom. I think there's another one in there, but all these things. I, I just started crying when my sister read it to me. I'm like, that's that's perfect. I didn't want. To, I didn't. I wanted to plant a flower that was sturdy, and the purple iris is sturdy through all kinds of things. So that's where that's how that started. We started planting purple irises in Hamden, Maine, to raise awareness to pancreatic cancer. So fast forward a couple years later, we started doing relay for life. Uh, locally here at Orono at the university. And we call, we called ourselves the Purple Iris Brigade, something that we could just do. And we would have our hope garden where people could buy these little flowers that twirled in the wind and put it for a loved one. And that's how we raised money. So a friend, Barb, a dear friend, Barb, reached out. I didn't know her at the time. Um, I got a message from a gal from New Jersey saying that her one of her best friends 
a battle of pancreatic cancer and she made her promise to reach out to me um, because I was such an inspiration to her while she was battling and she was only supposed to have a few months but ended up with two years extra. Um, and so it took me a while to email Barb back, so I finally did. And Barb is the one that helped us create an actual nonprofit. And so the Purple Iris Foundation was born, I think, around 2012. And right about that time, with our, I, I met up with my partner in crime, co-founder of Pound the Pavement, and her mother-in-law was battling pancreatic cancer, Brenda. And so that's how Pound the Pavement, Purple Iris Foundation all came about. So we, it's all truly been about utilizing people and giving them a way to give back. Um, and for me, it was planting flowers initially, which we still do our Purple Iris project um, all around our area here in the Bangor Brewer, uh, all the way down to Ellsworth. So in the main area, we do our Purple Iris project in our hope gardens, but it's grown into so much more um, support groups monthly uh, for all cancers. Um, we do spa days for the Reiki and, and, and the massage and, and the pampering, people that all people that are impacted by cancer, whether you're a caregiver or a patient, um, they can come in and get pampered for the day. So it's literally taken on a life of its own. Um, and I'm blessed and just blessed every day that I have a way to get back. And then I talk to people all over the world um, that's newly diagnosed. I get emails in French that I have to decipher and um, people, a lot of people from Australia and England. I have a gal from Italy that I'm talking with now. Um, just so many people find me and um, we, we stay connected and it's, it's a pleasure being part of their journey. Um, I've met so many beautiful souls along this journey and uh, I wish I could have could still say that they're all around, but they're not. Uh, and uh, so that's what drives me to do the Purple Iris Foundation. It's just a way to give back and, and giving our community up here a way, some of the things that I was given that helped me in my journey and, and bring it kind of out of the darkness and in, into more of the light that these are accept, acceptable ways. These aren't hokey. You know, it's about taking care of yourself and your well-being, not only physically, but, but mentally, mentally and spiritually. So that's what we try to provide you. And so the Pound the Pavement is part of the, the Purple Iris Foundation, and that's coming up. You do that event in Maine. Where does that happen in Maine, Chris? It happens in Bangor, Maine. Okay. Uh, we have partnered with Bodies by Badger, the Sea Dog Brewing Company, um, and a local TV station that we put it on October 14th. It's our sixth year. Um, each year we go up in, in, in attendance. Last year we had 500 people. Wow. Uh, so, so we're hoping for 600 this year. Um, it's more of an event. It's a 5K color fun run. So in the beginning and end, we pay homage to pancreatic cancer. But in the middle, we have orange, the oranges, the yellows, the pinks, the blues, the greens. So we try to, to pay homage to other cancers as well um, because there's, there's so many impacted and so many people battling that, you know, I, I can't just pancreatic at every color station. So, you know, it's, it's turned into a great event. We have a lot of fun, a lot of local businesses sign on. Uh, we do uh, high school 
high school and college teams where we they have a challenge where they challenge each other to see who gets the, the biggest uh, team and they win an award. So we we try to, to and they get a cheaper price to register. So we try to engage and keep it pretty cost effective for people and you know I think we charge when it goes up to thirty or thirty five on race day, but we keep it at twenty for the team so people can do a, a color run and have a good time, have some vendors, some some uh, different businesses have uh, their wear, some artists. We usually have kids' games. So it's, it just turned into a nice event uh, every October. It gets a little cold in November. Most people ask why we don't have it during pancreatic cancer awareness <laughs> month. I said, well, the snow's flying in November. Yeah. That, that, that doesn't make a color run very fun. No. Well, well, in Maine, you guys, your winter starts in like end of September, though, right? Kind of. That's a joke. I don't well, know. <laughs> it's funny. We have Indian summer, and then it, it you never know. It's a yeah. bad. You never know what you're going to get. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, it can be snowing on October 14th. But we usually, we, we have a, a good day. Uh, I have to say, there's never been, the sun's always shining. A couple times we've had shorts on, uh, which is phenomenal. That makes for a great day. Yeah. Um, there's no such so, thing as global warming, but you know we'll we'll save that for another yeah. podcast, of course. Yeah, right. Of course. Yeah, especially Maine in October having shorts on that's just insane. Yeah, yeah, true, true. So, Chris, I've got a couple questions for you, and some of my questions you've answered already and done a phenomenal job sharing with our listeners. But if you had to define pancreatic cancer, give it a definition. What's your definition of pancreatic cancer? Oh. That's a good one. Um, fine pancreatic cancer. Brutal. Uh, not only on the patient, but on the family, uh, upon diagnosis. Um, I'm going to have to do this in part. So brutal, in the beginning, diagnosis. It's, uh, then I, I would have to say hope, because you need hope to get through it. Um, because you go through stages, so just brutally surreal. Uh, you need to find hope and find some hope to hang on to. Um, yeah, I, I that's a hard one, Dino. Wow, to find it. I told you the hard uh, ones were coming. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I hate even saying the word deadly because it's such a negative connotation, but it's, it's one of the deadliest cancers out there. And I even hate saying that because I don't want people to think that, but it, it, it's brutal. Um, I, I saw what it did to my family, and I, I was the one that had to take and tell them I'm not going to die. I, this, is, this is what we're going to do. And, you know, so, okay, let me reframe this. So... I'm talking through this because this is a really hard question. Um, life-changing, uh, brutally life-changing. <laughs> um, something that we need to get a handle on quicker than what we are. Um, that's a very good one. I might even have to come back and write something on your wall on Facebook. <laughs> that's a good one. That's really, that's making me think. And, I don't get many questions like that. It's usually just telling my story, and so I, let, I'm going to leave that open ended because I, I don't, I need more time on that one. But there's really. no right or wrong, Chris, in this, and that, yeah, that's well, what no, I think it, is the hardest thing. Yeah, well, no, think about my journey and you know how I would define it, but it would totally be a different definition for me. It was 
it empowered me. I, I have to say that it showed me what I had inside of me. But I know for all people it's not that. Correct. For me, it was it was brutally life-changing and then empowering. And then it brought me to where I could spread hope because I know that there's a reason for why I'm still around and I, I try to do right by that every day. So for me, that's what it is for me. Awesome. Last question, and then uh, we're going to give you an opportunity to share with our audience where they can find you, get in touch with you, and learn more about the Purple Iris Foundation and then Pounding the Pavement event. And this is going to be a hard one, Chris, and I'm sorry in, in advance for asking this question. And if you don't feel comfortable answering it, we don't have to. Uh, I'll preface that saying. Recently, we're friends on Facebook. You talked about the PTSD of the disease. And I know this is um, this is something that I think is like the elephant in the room with this disease, especially for the survivors, because it's obvious, um, you know, the reality of the disease is there, there is not a lot of survivors. And every time we talk to survivors, it's that big elephant in the room about like the guilt of having that, but also like you said, you talk to people from all over the world and, and some of them may not have the results that you've had. Can you expand on that? And, you know, how does that from a survivor standpoint, maybe what's a bit of advice that you can give to maybe someone listening to this podcast that was in your shoes that you were in back in 2008 today, what bit of advice would you give them? The PTSD, I thought, I, I never even knew I had it. Um, and recently, um, my uh, they they told I, I've had a review for my disability. Um, and I don't go to the doctor. I don't complain because what's the use? That's just not me. I don't dwell on the negative. Yep. I have a lot of negative and how I feel all the time, but I don't harp on them because no doctor can fix them. Um, from what I found, and I've been to a lot of doctors, so. It, that part, uh, the whole disability thing has made me have to talk about how poorly I feel on a consistent basis. Uh, two or three times a week, I'm having to divulge to doctors how bad I actually feel. And they're like, well, you never come in, Chris. And they said, well, am I supposed to come in and just harp on it and you do nothing? And so what it, what it's done to me is brought me back. I've had to talk about just like today, talk about a lot of things that only in more of an intense way that have impacted me and still do. Uh, you know, my nausea is through the roof most times. Nobody would know that because why do I tell them? I, I don't have to. It's just life. Like Life throws at you things and you just have to deal with them. And so I had to talk about all the real things that are going on internally because all I hear is like, you look great on the outside. You look great. I'm like, well... My insides don't match that, but thank you when I'm at the doctor. And so now just talking about all the things and how poorly I felt has triggered something that I never knew what it was. And one of my trips was to a psychiatrist, psychotherapist, I don't know, whatever uh, Social Security sent me to, and he diagnosed me with anxiety, depression, <laughs> and PTSD. And I said, well, uh, uh, what? I said, I understand that. I said, and so we started talking about what was, because I started crying as soon as I started, he asked me something and boom, the alligator tears came out. 
He's like, this is PTSD, Chris. He's like, when you go back and you call it stay anxiety, he's like, that's just PTSD with a prettier term. And I said, whoa. I said, you're throwing a lot of stuff at me. Hmm. And he's like, that's, that's just what it is. And so all these feelings I've had, I finally figured out what it was after him explaining to me. It's not just, it's not all anxiety. A lot of it is trauma that you're reliving. And um, so with that, uh, it's brought a lot of things to the forefront. Um, and it's brought the PTSD going through this whole process. I, I That's a whole story in itself with the appeal and uh, just uh, the hoops you have to jump through and no accountability on the social security level makes it very hard for somebody that um, already has cognitive things going on, um, a lot of chemo fog still, and so it made it very difficult to deal with them, and they literally have triggered everything that I feel, and just all these intense emotions and just feelings that I am having a hard time dealing with, and a, and a lot of it's cancer-related, but it's me having to fight for my life again with disability because, I mean, our, our foundation, I don't get paid. It's all volunteer-based. I do I do this out of the love and believing in what I do and, and, and bringing hope and trying to engage our community in, in more awareness for pancreatic cancer. And um, But with this, I, having to tell people all my things that I just keep in my head was just so debilitating that I'm like, I, I don't talk about this stuff. And they're like, well, you should. And they said, but... What's that going to get me? Nobody wants to hear about you complaining. No, I, I, yeah, but Chris, this is this is a very important subject. I think for our listeners at home, for caregivers and for fighters, because this is reality. Like just like it is, you know. So it's not something that now I've always said. Like mental illness in this country is such a stigma, and no one wants to talk about it. And PTSD is right up there with that. That it's you know like listen, we you just went through. 10 years of waking up every day potentially knowing that this could be your last day because you have pancreatic cancer and that's what everyone goes through that deals with pancreatic cancer so you can't tell me um you know that there's no such thing as ptsd for people that are fighting cancer and especially pancreatic cancer and for the caregivers because i when i saw that video i was like chris is so on point this is like the, the gorilla in the room or the elephant, whatever analogy you want to use, no one talks about it. But I guarantee 99% of the patients, 99% of the families go through this. And oh, I, 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 I my, mom, you. my mom and I talk about it. I said, you must have it, mom, because most of the time I'm with her. We, we do projects all around and she sees me on my good days and bad days. And what I do is I process with her when I'm something really hits me. Uh, what was it? I lost my keys the other day and I have OCD, but I've done better. But when I lose my keys, my first, I just, it, OCD has taken me from, oh, wow, I lost my keys. I, I better find them to going off like the deep end, like, oh my God, somebody's going to break into my house. I mean, all these yeah. stupid things. Yeah. And then I had to talk myself back down and my mom's just looking at me and I said, okay, I said, you just witnessed something that I said, I'm talking through this so you understand yeah. 
what I'm going through. I said, because this isn't about you. I said, this is about me and not knowing how to deal with all this crap in me. And, um, and she's like, thank you for doing that. And I said, well, I just don't want to think it's you. And I know my mom has them because we've talked about that. I mean, she, my dad was, had a long-term illness. My stepdad died of lung cancer. I mean, so she has a lot of these things. And so me talking about it has, has opened up her a little bit to talking about her struggles and, you're right. It is an elephant in the room because uh, when I told my my family doctor that I had PTSD, she just kind of looked at me and I said, um, "I didn't self-diagnose." I said, and so I got the doctor to send her that stuff. And so then we started talking and processing more. And, and for me, like if you ask, if you're asking me questions about my my journey, do you know I can answer them no problem. And they'll bring up stuff, but I'll answer them. But for me to just talk or to write a book. I cannot bring that stuff up in my own mind. And so that tells me that tells me that the PTSD is completely real because I will not bring these things up myself. I, I tried. I tried, and it, it's like this brick wall that I'm really trying to get through. And there's just some things that those feelings you just don't want to have again. And, uh, it's, it's, it's very real, and, and uh, I wish more people did talk about it. I actually had numerous people reach out to me on messenger about thank you for sharing you know i may may not have cancer but i i suffer from ptsd from whatever and and so for me it one of my things to get over that is to talk about it in front of people and that's why i did it because it 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 took it off my chest i can talk about it with my mom but if i'm doing it and putting myself out there on facebook um you know maybe it did help somebody And, and from what i saw it did and uh, it helped me just by letting that weight off my shoulders. Just saying it out loud had a lot of power. It empowered me. Well, thank you for sharing that, uh, Chris. So, because I know it, it, when I welcome. saw that, man, that, that was so on point. And I commend you for having the courage because I know it's not easy. Uh, none of this is easy. But that in particular, putting yourself out, making, you know, opening yourself out to the public and even to your friends on Facebook um, is really powerful. It was so powerful. So I, I appreciate it. I appreciate you telling our audience here and sharing that because I know it's not easy. It, so. it isn't. And, you know, I, I guess for me, it's uh, we have a bunch of main people are very a tough breed. And so we offer like a support <laughs> group. We breed. get a few people that, that trickle in here and there. And, and what I found is people just think it, if they don't talk about it, it just it isn't happening. And and I guess what I want to stress is it is happening. You just don't realize it. And one of these days, it just comes to a head. And cancer is a stressful, stressful thing. I had what they call the mind-body therapist for three and a half years of active treatment. Mm-hmm. I still have her today that I talk to. Um, I have several friends that are in the mental health. And so it's just about finding somebody and whether it be a clergy member, it's just somebody to talk to that, that might have some insight or even call me or, or message me. I mean, it just I think sometimes just talking about it with people, um, and especially if you're somebody battling, it's nice to talk to somebody that, that knows what you're going through. And I think that's the important thing of just ha- all the outreach that I have with others is, is sharing these things and, and making it that oh, it's okay to talk about that. And then they'll jive in, oh, you know, I'm really, I was really thinking about your video, Chris, and, you know, what you're talking about, PTSD, and, 
you know, my family's very good, but I'm always on edge. And, and you know, I, I just say, you know, find somebody you can talk to, whether it's somebody at the hospital you go to or just anybody. Uh, just that people want, people want to help you. And I'm not the biggest person that will reach out, but I, I am now. I'm, I'm learning to do that. And my friends have, uh, circled around me and kind of given me a big group hug through all of this. So that's, support is is priceless and um i think uh people try to do it alone and no you don't have to awesome advice so for our last question and i know that last question i kind of two-parted it audience listening at home someone who's in your shoes where you were back in 2008 what's the best bit of advice you can give them breathe breathe take take a second and breathe and and that second opinion Get a second opinion. Even though you might love your doctor, get a second opinion. Get a third. Um, the Power of Now. Read The Power of Now. And The Cancer Conqueror. I think both are on Amazon. Um, hope. you got to find hope. Whether it's reaching out to a survivor uh, or to an organization that can put you in touch with somebody battling. Just don't go it alone. Um, let's see. Look into alternative, or I call them complementary therapies. Uh, you know, don't go with where your gut tells you to go. Uh, if it tells you me, I knew I needed I needed conventional treatment with non-traditional because I I I wanted all of it because I needed I knew I needed more help than just chemo being thrown in me. And just explore all your options and. Uh, Keep an open mind. Have faith. Find your faith. That was a big thing for me. Is finding my center back again and and uh, realizing how blessed I am for every day and and doing being grateful still for being alive. You might be battling for your life, but you're still alive. And uh, live. Do things that you've always wanted to do. You know. Um, let's see. That's been amazing, Chris. I, I think you've uh, I've I've been taking notes here as you've been talking, and you hit on so many powerful things for me, and hopefully our audience takes away from this podcast. Is you know, I mean, I have hope, courage, faith, attitude is everything. And you mentioned something that I just want to make note of that a lot of our survivors that we've talked to talked about humor and how humor in their fight becomes such an important piece on dealing with this cancer. And yeah. so I, I think you um, have been absolutely amazing in sharing your story with our audience. And I can't thank you. I wish you were here in the studio. I could give you a big hug. Um, but uh, I'll have to, I am going up to Boston soon. So maybe I'll take a trek up to Maine and come see I you. I would love to see you, Dino. I would love that. <laughs> love um, and one of these there. days we'll get together in the studio somewhere and, and do a live one. So, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. So for our listeners at home, where can they so what i'd love to do is share so if there are listeners at home that want to reach out and talk to you about their journey and compare notes what's the best way that they can reach out to you uh the best way is uh you can go to our website purpleirisfoundation.com and, and message through there um my email address is cparish at purpleirisfoundation.com um we're on facebook twitter Instagram, so you can message 
anywhere there. And I'm between me and my sister, we're the two that that do the social media. That uh, one of us will get the message and she'll forward it on. So uh, any any of the social media outlets, uh, and then purpleirisfoundation.com, and also my email uh, and uh, my cell phone number. I don't. I think you have that. Do you have that? Do you know? Yeah, I have that, but I think email is the best bet. Yeah, 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 that, yeah. yeah, it is the initial contact. So. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And then for people that want to learn more about pounding the pavement and what you guys are doing in October up in Maine, what's the best way that they can find out information about that? If people want to know a little bit more about it or even register, hopefully for the event. Sure. Uh, well, we're uh, to register for the race for pound the pavement. Our sixth annual pound the pavement is on Active dot com. Um, but we also have a Facebook page uh, for the for Pound the Pavement for Pancreatic Cancer Awareness. Um, but then also the PurpleIrisFoundation.com. You can go there to register and and see about prior events uh, that we've had. Um, also, we have a, a golf tournament in honor of a really loved gentleman in our area, Todd Cray. Um, they're putting on the Hot Toddy Extravaganza. So uh, we're the beneficiary of that and we're helping push that uh, out, out to the masses. Um, uh, people loved him in this community and they wanted something to celebrate him so we're we're happy to put that on with them as well and that happens September 14th. So nice. it's been a it's a busy and then we go into November for Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month and that's, that's a huge month here. We try to light our river here purple awesome. uh, along the side. So. Awesome. I love it all, Chris. I love it all. So I just want to say thank you for allowing us to share your story with the Project Purple community and the general public as a whole. And thank you for having the courage to do what you're doing and all the great things. And as I said in the very beginning, it's been uh, my pleasure to get to know you and really consider you a very, very close friend uh, and part of an extended part of the Project Purple family because we're all trying to do these great things within our communities and, and at large as well with the general public and raise awareness so that one day we no longer have to do what we do and, and move on to the next thing. So thank you, Chris, exactly. for being a great guest on our podcast and for sharing your story and for all the things you're doing. And thank you, uh, thank you to all our listeners at home for listening to the Project Purple podcast and the many stories of inspiration. Thank you, Dino. Thank you, everybody. Have a great day.